When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today on Something You Should Know, why it might be a good idea to stop trying to impress people so much. Then, phobias. Why we have them, why there are so many of them, common phobias, and some very strange ones. I'm, I'm very intrigued by the phobia of buttons, which is known as cumponophobia, and I'm amazed at how common it is. Apparently Steve Jobs had it, which is why he always wore those turtleneck sweaters. Also, how often should you change the oil in your car? Probably not as often as you think. And the fascinating science of dog thinking and behavior. You think you know your dog, but maybe not. One of the things I've tested in the lab is the guilty look of dogs. So a lot of people tell me that their dog feels guilty when they've done something wrong. And what we found is that guilty look is entirely prompted by us. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have a job opening and you need to hire someone, what are the chances, when you think about it, what are the chances of finding a great match inside your circle of influence? Pretty slim. I mean, even if you put the word out there, a lot of people who may be perfect are never going to hear about it. That's why you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that will help you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed does it all. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with these candidates faster. But it's not just about the speed, it's about the quality. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about Indeed is how efficient it is. You get quality candidates, you get them fast, and that's what it's all about. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, too. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash something. Go to Indeed.com slash something right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on Something You Should Know. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Something You Should Know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. How often are you supposed to change the oil in your car? A lot of people believe it's every 3,000 miles, but that's actually not correct. In fact, Edmunds.com says we waste a lot of money, millions of dollars, on unnecessary oil changes, and we're disposing of millions of gallons of old contaminated waste oil into the environment way too soon. 
The 3,000 mile oil change rule is really a marketing tactic to get you to bring your car in to the shop more often. In fact, in an article in the trade publication National Oil and Lube News, they state that a few extra services or oil changes can go a long way toward increasing the amount of money a customer will spend. So here's the truth. Your car's owner's manual will tell you when to change your oil, and you should go by that. On average, it's about every 7,800 miles. The 3,000-mile rule was once accurate, but oil and car technology have rendered that recommendation completely obsolete. There is no car manufacturer today who recommends that the oil be changed every 3,000 miles. Not a single one. Just because the last oil change place you went to put a little sticker on your windshield telling you when to come back in 3,000 miles doesn't mean you should. And if you have one of those indicators that comes on, a light that comes on that says you need service, those indicator lights come on because they're set to come on at a particular time and you can reset them. In fact, we just did in one of our cars, it was set to every 3,000 miles and we just reset it to... 7,800 miles. So now it, it won't prompt us to change the oil until 7,800 miles have passed. And that is something you should know. Do you have a phobia? A fear of something? Maybe it's spiders or snakes or heights or clowns or just something that creeps you out, disgusts you, or puts you in a panic. Well, you've come to the right place if you've ever wondered why that is, or where phobias come from, and why people seem to have such unusual phobias, and anything else about phobias. My guest is Kate Summerscale. She is a writer and former literary editor for the Daily Telegraph in London, and author of a book called The Book of Phobias and Manias, A History of Obsession. Hi, Kate. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Hi. It's great to be here. So before we get into the nuts and bolts of phobias and what they are and where they come from, right at the top here, just tell me some strange phobia that someone actually has that that would surprise me. There's a, a story in my book about a, a young man who's scared of popcorn. I mean, really scared of it, appalled by it. He finds it like kind of worse than maggots or something, something kind of bloated and expanding and and um, when he was at school, of course, his classmates would just tease him, throw popcorn at him. And it was quite a problem because it made it difficult for him to go to the cinema where popcorn was ubiquitous. Um, but uh, it, And people thought it was hilarious. But to him, it was not hilarious. It was absolutely threatening and deeply distressing. Well, see, that's one of those phobias. I, it's hard to imagine, like, where does that come from? And, but before we get into that, so help me understand. So you often hear people have a phobia about spiders. Is it really a phobia or is it just kind of a, an ick factor that they, they just don't like spiders? Or because it doesn't seem like it's anxiety so much as it's just gross. Broadly speaking, all phobias are on a spectrum. I think lots of us describe ourselves as phobic about certain things. But to be a diagnosable phobia, as the, the anxiety or aversion or disgust reflex has to interfere with our normal lives. Um, it also has to be irrational. 
and uh, to have lasted for six months or more, so be an abiding thing. And, uh, and yes, there, it is uh, it is an ick factor with spiders, but it's also a fear factor. Apparently spiders trigger both the disgust reflex and the fear reflex. So we recoil from them as if they might infect us, but also as if they might attack us. So they're unusual in that, and it is a very common phobia. What are the common phobias that people seem to have? Well, spiders, arachnophobia is common. Um, even more common is aphidiophobia, which is the fear of snakes, which I, I think is the most common of all the specific phobias. Though there are also categories like social phobia, which are, which are very prevalent. Lots of people have social phobias of one sort or another. What are some examples of social phobias? Agoraphobia is um, often understood as a kind of social phobia. Glossophobia is the fear of public speaking, which um, is, is also so social phobias are sort of uh, difficulties around being with other people. So they, they don't fall into the same group as the specific phobias, which are phobic reactions to particular objects, uh, creatures, situations. What are the numbers? I mean, it seems like when you talk to people, everybody has something that bothers them, has some sort of phobia. But, but what are the, the, the statistics on this? Who has phobias? Well, in terms of diagnosable phobias, um, it's thought that one woman in 10 has a phobia and one man in 20. Um, the, it's quite hard to measure their prevalence because most people who have phobias don't seek treatment. They simply avoid the thing that they are scared of or averse to. But um, there have been some big sort of compilations of worldwide surveys that suggest those figures are about right. Well, I imagine there have been phobias for as long as there have been people, but, but when did it get that name? When did somebody finally say, you know, when that person gets freaked out by spiders, that's a phobia? The idea of a phobia as a psychological condition it only came about in the late 18th century. And then there was a great craze for naming these conditions, finding specific phobias in the 19th century and early 20th centuries. So it's sort of if something is named as a phobia, then suddenly you have people who have it. But it's not as if nobody had those irrational fears before. Well, I know you talk about that there is something of a contagious element to phobias and that people have phobias and, and maybe think they're the only one, but in fact, there are a lot of people with that phobia. A good example is there's a condition known as trypophobia, a fear or a version of clusters of holes, which was only named in 2005 and was only identified because people shared pictures of clusters, irregular clusters of holes on the internet and discovered that they shared an aversion to these images, that they made them recoil and sometimes feel nauseous or, or dizzy. And so the condition was identified then and found to be actually quite prevalent and groups gathered on the internet and a woman in Ireland gave, the, gave a name to the pathology. And so I think probably it was something 
pre-existing that nobody had really considered before as something that might be shared or might be classified as a phobia. But um, scientists have speculated that it's actually based on our aversion to pathogens because these irregular clusters of holes look quite like fungus or mold or the pustules of infectious disease. And so there's a sort of evolutionary explanation for why we might have this fear. Well, I always thought that phobias, for the most part, had to be triggered by an event. Like you're, you're afraid of spiders because you had some disgusting experience with one. But it sounds like what you're saying is that maybe they're more genetic or they're, you know, evolutionarily evolved in us. Well, I think a lot of phobias can be traced to some an evolutionary explanation can be found for them, even if it's rather indirect but they have to be triggered by experience. Um, often, and most dramatically, that is a shock or a trauma, some bad event that happens, like uh, if you're bitten by a dog and you develop a phobia of dogs, for example, maybe an obvious example. Um, but it can be that you witness somebody else's fear. That could be the triggering event. So the child of somebody who is scared of spiders is more likely to become scared of spiders. And though that may have a genetic component, it also um, clearly the modeling, the fact that you see fear on your parents' face um, is, is the thing that sort of awakens or um, alerts the anxiety in you. Do you think, or, or have has there been enough experience in this that if someone has a phobia that really is in the way pretty much any phobia can be overcome if you work at it enough or or like the cluster of holes phobia i mean it seems like that's just part of who you are and the better the better choice would be to avoid clusters of holes yes um i mean i think phobias are actually among the most treatable anxiety disorders. So there's cognitive behavioral therapies, there are virtual reality therapies, um, there's hypnosis, uh, some, some phobias can be helped with medication, um, talking therapies, exposure therapy. But um, mo most people, and, and many of these are extremely effective, but most people don't um, seek those out. And perhaps some people, phobias in some ways are sort of, do become an identifying marker of who somebody is and being tripophobic or arachnophobic or having a horror of buttons feels like a personality trait. And it can be managed by simply avoiding the objects of one's fear. We're talking about phobias, why we have them, where they come from, and what you can do about them. Kate Summerscale is my guest. She's the author of The Book of Phobias and Manias, A History of Obsession. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know was all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. 
She goes beyond the headlines, so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So, Kate, I have a phobia. I haven't really thought much about this until this discussion, but I have a phobia about roller coasters. Every time I get near one, I start to sweat. And, and I had an experience when I was young that was rather frightening. And But not only do I have a phobia about it and don't like going on them, I don't like I just don't like them. So I have no incentive to fix that because I have no, it doesn't, fixing it has no appeal to me because I still don't like them. Yes, it sounds like uh, the, the experience you had has made you not just avoid going on them, but you've maybe put some of that scared feeling into the roller coasters per se, you know, as objects. And, um, that that might be quite a sort of useful mechanism that you've, uh, but you know, the, it's a way of parceling up the experience and consigning it to the roller coaster instead of yourself. Right. It's like right. a way of expelling the feeling is to associate it very firmly with that object. But the um, thing, the thinking so, is the interesting thinking is though that why would I want to get over that so that I would then go on something that I don't like. Because I, I'm, I'm associating my liking of roller coasters with my fear of them. That the, That's all part of the same thing. So I could get over the fear, but I still don't like them. So why would I do that? What would be the benefit? So, Yeah, well, there, there wouldn't be. And, and you know, you're, you're in good company. Most people do take that sort of pragmatic view. Um, if your fear was of something that you had to deal with on a sort of daily basis, there would be more incentive to get over it. Um, but if it, if it does serve as, a, you know, if it is something you can avoid and take pleasure in avoiding, <laughs> then, um, then, then that is a solution. And we all fear all, all kinds of things and we all like and dislike things in, in different ways and ma maneuver our way around the world uh, according to those, those preferences. And that, I suppose, lies at the extreme, extreme end of that. And it's quite a useful anchor to know, I hate that, you know, I, I will not do that. I will not go there. Yeah. Um, and uh, so there's no reason why we should want to get rid of all our phobias it's only when it um, damages our lives that we and and stops us from doing things that we might want to do that that we might want to tackle them but another problem and i have faced this with roller coasters and made peace with it is there's a lot of social pressure well you shouldn't be afraid they're completely safe you're you'll be fine and I have to, like, defend myself. And I, so I stop defending myself. I don't do that anymore. But there is a, a, a lot of, same thing with spiders or anything else. People will say, oh, come on. What are you, what are you talking about there? It's not, it, not going to hurt you. It's not, but that's not the point. Right. It can sometimes be useful to simply say, I have a phobia of. People won't accept it so well if it's something like popcorn because they think that sounds silly. But if you say it about spiders, I think people might note that now, um, as with many anxiety disorders, are kind of learning to have a bit more respect for just a kind of like, don't go there, <laughs> 
this is this is deeply troubling to me. I don't need to explain it. It just is. And so I think there probably is more understanding. And sometimes the use of the word phobia can help communicate to another person the level at which you're troubled by something. It's not I don't like it. It's not even it scares me. It's that it, it is like anathema to me. You know, it is very distressing to my psyche. At the beginning of our conversation, I asked you to name a, an unusual phobia, and you named popcorn, which, well done. That, that's pretty unusual. But very few people likely suffer from that. Are there what seem to be unusual phobias, or can you name an unusual phobia that it turns out a lot of people have? Yeah, so I'm, I'm very intrigued by the phobia of buttons, which is known as cumponophobia. And I'm amazed at how common it is. When I've talked about it to friends, I almost always, uh, the person will know somebody who has this phobia. And it, apparently Steve Jobs had it, and uh, he, though, which is why he always wore those turtleneck sweaters. So people who have this phobia don't like to have clothes with buttons. They don't like to wear shirts. They don't like to wear jackets or coats with buttons. But it's a very strange one. I, so I sort of dug into some of the case studies to try to work out what it might mean, where it might come from. As often as not, people had, or the cases I came across, people had had some distressing experience with buttons early in their life. Um, one that interested me was uh, a boy who had had some painful dental work when he, uh, when he was a child. And um, he had looked at the buttons on the dentist's shirt while the work was being carried out. So he'd made an association. And it struck me that there is an association, perhaps, between buttons and teeth because most people who are scared of buttons are particularly scared of dangling buttons or fully detached buttons. It's the idea that they might fall off or hang that is disturbing. And I thought this was quite, mapped quite neatly onto teeth, which, uh, which we feel very threatened by the idea of having a tooth pulled out or dangle from, its, from the mouth. There's also theories with buttons about it seems to most people who suffer from um, the button phobia find buttons disgusting, strangely enough. They trigger the disgust reflex and their facial expression. Can you name, real quickly, just run down some of the more interesting, maybe unusual phobias that you came across in your research that, that people would find unusual? Coolrophobia, which is the fear of clowns, which became very widespread in the States in the 1980s. Triskaidekaphobia and tetraphobia, those are the obsessive fears of the numbers 13, which is quite common in the West, and of the number 4, which is very common in the East because um, various countries like Japan and China, the, the word for is very similar to the word death. Phobia of balloons, often of the popping of balloons, but uh, some people cannot bear to be around balloons. There's also telephonophobia, which is a fear of taking phone calls, which was very common when the phone was first invented, but has now become common again because um, younger people 
tend not to make phone calls, but instead to text and make social media posts. And the fear of cotton balls, um, which I'd never quite thought about, but it's all about the slightly uncanny texture, the squeak that cotton balls make as they tear. Some people are extremely averse to that and can't bear to touch the stuff. You said in your description of clown phobia that, that it became a thing particularly in the West during the 80s. What happened in the 80s that made it so popular a phobia? Well, in 1979, there was a, a serial killer, John Wayne Gacy, who oh, was convicted. Yeah, right, right. And he was pictured in the papers wearing a clown costume. And there became a, almost a mass panic, especially among school children and schools, about killer clowns, stalker clowns. And then there was Stephen King's book, It, um, in 1986, which kind of cemented the figure of the predatory clown. Do phobias ever just go away on their own? Like you, you're, you have a phobia of spiders and you wake up one morning and all of a sudden you don't. Sure, yeah. I had a phobia of blushing when I was a teenager, which of course makes you blush. That just fell away. I think a lot of children are phobic. They're terrified of certain things. And um, phobias are most pre prevalent in childhood. And they... They get they lessen as you age. Apparently, old people, people sort of become, are the least phobic of all. We get less phobic as we progress through life. Well, I've learned about some new phobias I didn't know existed before. But perhaps more importantly, I mean, it seems based on what you're saying, if if people can be phobic about popcorn or buttons, uh, people could likely be phobic about anything and and perhaps we need to respect that if people are phobic about it they're phobic about it i've been speaking with kate summerscale the name of the book is the book of phobias and manias a history of obsession and there's a link to that book in the show notes thanks for being here kate oh well thank you you're very kind it's been fun to talk <laughs> Since dogs are man's best friend, you have likely had your share of interactions with lots of dogs in your life. Perhaps you even have one in your home right now. As I'm sure you've seen, many dog owners treat their dogs as if they're almost human. They're a part of the family. They project human-like qualities on their dog, as if the dog thinks like a person and understands like a person. But do dogs do that? What is going through a dog's mind? What do they respond to? How do they view the world? Someone who studies this is Alexandra Horowitz. She is a researcher who observes dogs for a living, and she's author of a book called The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves. Hi, Alexandra. Welcome. It's great to be here, Mike. Thanks. So real briefly, explain what it is you do. Well, I'm a dog cognition researcher. I study domestic dog behavior, the behavior of owned dogs, with an interest in finding out more about what they know and understand and believe, uh, you know, what it's like to be a dog, basically. And I have a research interest in this. I'm interested in understanding non-human animal minds. But I think with my particular work, it also has a real relevance to this relationship that we have as a culture and as individuals with the dogs that live in our home. 
So very often people will make statements about their dogs. You know, my dog is really smart, or my dog understands this, or my dog's really dumb, or whatever they say. Are they are they probably right because they live with the dog, they know the dog, or not? We don't know ahead of time whether those are right or wrong. In my mind, those statements that we make, which are suppositions based on behavior or our expectations, should be tested. And we should look at them critically with a kind of scientific eye. And that's what I like to do. So I think sometimes it turns out that statements of longtime dog owners about what their dog knows or understands turn out to have a lot of truth. Other times, they're really off the mark. And can you give me an example of that, of both of those, of, of being right on the money and being way off the mark? Okay, well, I'll start with the second. One of the things I've tested in the lab is the guilty look of dogs. So a lot of people tell me that their dog feels guilty when they've done something wrong, or at least, you know, that the person has designated as wrong behavior gotten into the trash, for instance. And in fact, there's a whole internet explosion of images and videos of dogs standing looking guilty next to the couch that they've just denuded or whatever it is. Um, But we did a study, and this study has been replicated by several other labs, where we basically just allowed a dog to either do something wrong or not. And we varied whether their person knew that it was wrong, the other words knew that they disobeyed or not. And what we found is that guilty look, the thing that makes us think that the dog feels guilty, is entirely prompted by us, by our subconscious or even conscious behavior when we encounter the scene and start to interact with the dog. Now, I'm not saying the dog doesn't feel guilty, But guilt, we should reflect, is a very human-like concept based on understanding the rules of human society. And dogs probably shouldn't be expected to have a full understanding of what's right or wrong. Instead, I think it's more of a submissive behavior based on past experiences with us that, hmm, they tend to get angry with me if I put on this face, you know, that clears things up. Um, so that's an example where we get things wrong. Are you saying um, that? Are you saying that that look is is manipulative in the sense that the dog is using it, knowing if I look like this, then maybe I won't get in trouble? I wouldn't call it manipulative. I would call it an appropriate response that gets a gets a re- better response from us. You know, if instead of being yelled at or put in the other room or put in their crate, they can put on this look and they don't get yelled at or put in the other room or put in the crate, then that's a look that I would put on as well when I saw you skulking around the doorway or using a tone of voice, for instance. So what generally is the experience of a dog? How intelligent are dogs? And I know there's lots of different breeds and and whatnot, but how much of our life do dogs get and how do how much of their life do we get i think we get surprisingly little of their life and that's because of some of the statements that we start to make right away assuming that they're having the same experience uh as we are because we're in the same room together maybe they're sitting on the couch with us they must be having the same experience is really not like that um they are very cognitively flexible so especially their social cognition, sort of thinking, uh, using others or understanding others, including human others, is pretty good. 
uh, in fact, much better than most other non-human animals. Uh, they look us in the eyes. They, they certainly can be attuned to things we're saying, not complex sentences, but you know, they learn words of a human language, uh, a language they don't have themselves. So they can be very sensitive to our behavior and to things that are meaningful to us. So in that sense of intelligence, if we think that humans you know, classify as the, like the most intelligent species, they show a lot of examples of that, but they are really different intelligence as well, right? I mean, just to give an example, their perceptual world is made up not just of sight, which is decent, their vision is pretty good, but of smells, right? They are mostly recognizing things, seeing the world through smells. So is it more or less smart to understand the world through olfaction instead of vision? I don't know that I could say it's either, you know, it's just a different way of looking at the world. So when dogs do things, uh, I'll use my own dog as an example. My dog barks at every stranger that comes into the house and mm. until she basically gives up because she, I don't know what she's trying to do or say or, or w what she's hoping for, but eventually if you ignore her long enough, she stops because she's not getting any reaction. And, you know, people say, oh, she must have been abused or she must have been, you know, she's, she's a rescue. She's, I don't know, I can't figure that out. I don't know why she barks at every stranger. Well, I think you almost just told me why she barks at every stranger. She's telling you that there's a stranger, right? And by the way, barking is something that their closest ancestors, wolves, do not do. They probably developed barking, uh, or we bred barking into them over the course of domestication in order to communicate with us primarily, right? It's just at the frequency of speech sounds. They use it kind of to tell us things often. Barking at someone at the door is announcing somebody is here, right? And it's, and or it's a, a sort of a show of excitement, right? Like barking as kind of hollering, like saying hello. The reason that it continues is if, as you say, somebody turns around and sort of barks back at them, don't bark, then you're kind of in conversation, right? That's rewarding. Um, if, you, if you ignore them, then the barking eventually stops. So what does a dog typically think about all day long? Well, there are some places that science does not have an answer. And I think that's one of them. I don't know what dogs think about. I don't even know the medium of their thoughts. You know, obviously, while I think in, in sentences often, I can't expect that a dog is thinking in sentences. That makes no sense. Um, certainly they can anticipate things, they reflect on things, they have memories, but I don't know what form those take. And I'm not even sure what science could start to address that, which is I think why people have such elaborate explanations that they put in that place where science doesn't really have an answer. Well, one of the reasons I think people wonder about that is, you know, there is that guilt of feeling like, you know, when people go to work in the morning and they leave their dog alone by itself all day, is the, is the dog just bored out of its mind or is it occupying itself somehow with thoughts or something? Uh, yeah, I think a lot of behavior indicates that dogs are really bored when they're left alone with nothing to do. This is why, you know, giving them something to do, whether in cases with dogs who, who like to have other dogs as companions, like another social companion is a great idea. Just having someone else there to 
experience the world with having a dog walker or somebody else come by and keep them company or take them out for the adventure of smelling the world uh, or have toys, something else to engage them. Um, if they don't, they I think that it's very likely that they are bored. Their behavior certainly indicates boredom. They don't need to sleep all day. They do that for lack of anything else to do. Uh, should everybody feel guilty for leaving their dogs at home? I think everybody should think about what they can do to, to sort of provide stimulation for this like sentient creature who we've taken into our lives, but then has we've reduced the environment of, um, and they can't control it for themselves. Are dogs like, in some ways, like humans in the sense that their life as a puppy sort of dictates how they turn out or not? In some ways, I think that's a fair analogy insofar as if things go really well, it's likelier that a, uh, a dog will be better adapted to all the new things that happen to them in the world. They'll be better equipped. And, and that goes from everything in, t uh, in terms of their physical health, if they get plenty of food, to their mental health. If they get lots of stimulation, uh, see a lot of new things in an agreeable way in, the, in that early socialization window when they're curious and not yet fearful or afraid. Um, and similarly with people. And do dogs bond with people better if they bond with them when they're puppies or dogs will bond with people at any point in time or, or they won't or what? Mm. Yeah, dogs are unique in being able to bond with people at all, basically. And if they've been exposed to people at all in the early part of their life, the socialization window is about from four to 14 weeks in puppies, um, then they're, they have no problem bonding with someone who they see several times uh, and forming a relationship. It doesn't need to be the person who they later will meet in that early window for them to form that relationship, but they do need to have met people, right? So exposed to this species, basically. Um, if they meet cats, they could also maybe form a later bond with cats. You mentioned a moment ago that w one thing you could do is if, if your dog is bored all day long, get another dog. Is that is it kind of across the board that dogs prefer or like the company of other dogs as opposed to being all by themselves? Well, that's a great question. I mean, that really does vary by dogs and it varies by the dog's experience with other dogs. So here's a case where I think owners know their dogs best. And if your dog never wants to have another dog come over, really you know, stays away from other dogs when you go out for walks or when they're running off leash or you're at a dog park, I would say that adding another dog to that house w might be difficult. It might not be healthy for that dog. Instead, might be difficult. Do dogs care about whether the dogs they're with are the same or different breeds? Or to a dog, is a dog a dog? They recognize all dogs as dogs. They absolutely seem to, they do seem to acknowledge uh, if a dog is really differently uh, shaped or sized, right? And they, and in play, actually, they're very good uh, large dogs at self-handicapping so that they can play with really little dogs. Uh, and little dogs can often be very confident and aggressive with bigger dogs who do that. But I do notice as well that they seem to be especially responsive to dogs of 
of their own breed or size. And I think that might just be that the communications that happen, a lot of bodily communications are always happening. The moving of the face and the eyes and the ears and the tail and the whole body posture. It might be that they kind of interpret those communications from a dog of their same size or breed more readily, more easily than they would from a dog of a different breed, right? Uh, so for instance, you know, a lot of dogs do a lot of communications with their tails, but there are also breeds that don't have tails. So on seeing a dog of their own uh, breed, they might get glean those conversational cues, but it might be a little bit harder with a dog of a different breed. You know, I've wondered, I don't know if anybody's ever studied this, you know how human twins have this kind of connection that is hard to explain. Do dogs of the same litter, has anyone ever looked at whether there's any kind of special bond there that like twins and humans have, or a dog is a dog? They certainly are are very interested in and responsive to their litter mates when they are growing up together. They learn from each other really readily much more readily than if you put another dog in with them. And yet, if they're separated from their litter mates, as most dogs are, as if they're distributed to human households, for instance, they don't seem to show a lot of recognition when they see that dog again um, later on in life. So I don't think they think that's just another dog. They do prefer the scent of their siblings much later, um, if, if laid on a blanket, than the scent of another dog. But their behavior doesn't show like this long lost recognition or affinity for a sibling. So I really want to hear what you have to say about this idea that we've all heard that um, dogs need to know that you're in charge, that they need to be trained, they want to be trained, they want to do what you want them to do. Yes or no? I don't think so. I think those are kind of misperceptions. I mean, first of all, I don't know why there has to be anybody in charge. It comes from this kind of false notion that their ancestors, wolves, because there's often the descriptive use of parent of the pack as being an alpha, because there's somebody who kind of organizes and leads the pack, that somehow we have to mimic that arrangement. You know, the wolf packs are made up, actually, as it turns out, of family members. So it's no different than maybe a parent who is the one who's kind of in charge of the family. But in contemporary society, they're not like laying down the law all the time. They're helping the youngsters, the ones who know less in the family, to just become part of the good members of the family and of society. Um, the, on the other hand, I do agree that they not that they need to be trained, but that they need engagement with you. And if you choose to do that through training uh, tricks, for instance, or participating in like a sport, like agility with your dogs, which does require some amount of training, then that can be really rewarding for the dog and also for the person often. But it doesn't have to be through training. You know, they are interested in interaction with you. They're social animals. Uh, so it could be any kind of interaction, not necessarily training. Uh, but they need that engagement. I agree with that component of it. But you often hear like, if you let your dog pull on its leash, then you're clearly you're not in charge and that the dog needs to be at your heel following you and that you need to show the dog that you're the boss. Yeah, I think that's a mistaken notion. What happens if the dog is the boss? They, nothing happens. Um, you're clearly in charge. You're the one who controls when a dog goes outside, when they get to eat, when they get to relieve themselves, for goodness sakes, right? Like 
humans are in charge of dogs' lives. But I think that what we should take from that is that we have a responsibility to see what the dog needs in their life and provide for those needs versus worry that they're somehow going to take charge of the family. Um, that doesn't happen. And it's a mistake to create a relationship based on the idea that it might. As you just said, you know, dogs rely on humans for everything and food, shelter, when they get to go to the bathroom, all that. Is that how a dog views its owner? Or is there truly, I don't know how you would figure this out, is, is there truly love from the dog towards its master? Or is it just meet my needs? I mean, I think it's a very ponderous question, whether the dog truly feels love. I think most of their behaviors indicate that they do feel some, what I would call love or affection, if you don't want to use word love, toward their people. And I think that's, but just part of, being a member of the family, which is in fact the way most people now think of their dogs as at some level family members. I think they think reciprocally like that, that we are the family, they look out for us, they're interested in where we are and how we're doing. They notice changes in our behavior. They're responsive to us in a way that they might not be responsive to the next person who walks along or walks down the sidewalk. So, that affiliation, that affection, that looks love-like to me, but, you know, I don't, I, I'd hesitate as a scientist to say, I know exactly what the dog feels like. I would just say, yeah, all their behavior seems to indicate that they experience the love toward us as we toward them. So what about the idea that s certain breeds are much smarter than other breeds? Are all dogs, you know, in the same intelligence ballpark or you know i mean i've you know lassie was trained to f find timmy down the well and go call the police and you know my dog couldn't more do that than she could fly to the moon mm. well i hesitate always in saying that what a breed or even a particular dog is smarter than any others because it really just ask the question is what are you asking them to do that's smart so there are some dogs like border collies who are really responsive and very astute workers and not only could easily be trained to do the thing they were initially bred to do, you know, herd um, grazing animals, but also a lot of the dogs who have learned a lot of words in scientific research have been border collies. So they seem to be really keen on working. However, if what you want a dog to do, if the thing that would make your dog a brilliant dog is just like hang out cooperatively by your side while you're working, and then agreeably go for a walk with you when you want to go for a walk, and then agreeably come back in when you want to come back in, then a Border Collie is not at all good at that, right? They have a very different temperament, and they're not skilled at being uh, that kind of companion animal the way uh, maybe a lab mix would be. So it really depends what you're calling intelligence, and I think in different contexts, we mean different things. So... In my, my estimation, there's no dog that's smarter than another dog. It's just be, what they're being asked to do. Well, I think for anybody who has a dog or has had a dog or interacts with dogs, this is really valuable information. I've been speaking with Alexandra Horowitz. She is a researcher who observes dogs for a living, and she's the author of The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves. And there's a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks, Alexandra. Thanks so much for having me on the show. 
I remember hearing this advice a, a long time ago, and it made sense to me. It's from a guy named Steve Chandler, who wrote a book called 50 Ways to Create Great Relationships. He says, one of the reasons that we fail to connect with other people is we just try too hard. There's a tendency in our culture to push ourselves and our kids to appear to be exceptional. The downside of being exceptional is we become the exception and therefore become isolated because no one really wants to be with an exceptional person. Research shows people like people who are like they are. So if you can convey, I'm just like you, you connect with people much better than if you convey, hey, let me show you how great I am. And that is something you should know. The best way to support this podcast is to share it with someone and help us grow our audience. And it's so easy to do. So please just tell a friend, family member, someone about something you should know and ask them to give it a listen. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.